May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please sit down. Now, I'm told that um, Billy Graham's wife, the, the wife of Billy Graham, the, uh, the American evangelist, uh, was asked by uh, an interviewer once, uh, so tell me, in all the years that you've been married to Billy Graham, and this, they've been married about 50 years or so, in all these years you've been married to Billy Graham, have you ever thought about committing adultery? Uh, and I'm told that she replied, adultery never, murder frequently. I'm kind of glad you laughed, because uh, I, think, I think that joke, cap- uh, yeah, I, she may have said it, I, I don't know for certain, I think that captures something about the idea of marriage as a, a lifelong commitment, something that we stick with through bad times as well as through good, um, which is not necessarily a popular idea of marriage nowadays. Um, but I wanted to start with that, because... Um, We're doing our sermon series, working through the Ten Commandments, and we come this week to do not commit adultery. So so in my sermon, I've basically got to tell you not to commit adultery. Um, I've done that at at St. Aidan's. I kind of feel like I've fired both barrels at them and then run away. Um, So I just just want to make clear to you, which, uh, which I tried to at St. Aidan's, but maybe I need to work a little bit harder, that... God is the God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And you know, if, you, if you're listening to that gospel reading, if anyone has looked at a woman lustfully, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, by that definition, I am, an, I am an adulterer. I'm not quite sure how Billy Graham's wife managed to go 50 years without committing adultery. By that definition, maybe it's different for women than for men. I don't know. But even if she's not guilty of adultery, she's guilty of murder. So... We all, need God, we all need God's forgiveness. Uh, God gives forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. That's uh, you know, the whole point of a celebrating communion. Uh, Jesus shed his blood and gave his body that people who sin may be forgiven. Uh, so please don't think that I'm pointing the finger at anybody in particular. The finger, you know, what do they say? If the, the, this, the finger points this way, but three more are pointing back uh, in this direction. And yet, you know, the Bible says do not commit adultery. Jesus is, uh, he repeats that teaching. Jesus is very serious on marital faithfulness, as is the Apostle Paul in, uh, in the reading that we just heard read. One more thing just before we, uh, we get into the meat of it. Um, of course, some of you may be thinking, well, why should I listen to a sermon on do not commit adultery? I'm not married. Um, you may be... You've never been married, perhaps you've been widowed. Why should I have to listen to a sermon on do not commit adultery? Well, I think it's still important because marriage is a fundamental building block of society. We can see around us, sadly, that marital breakdown creates all kinds of social and economic problems. So I think it's important that we all do what we can in whatever position we're in to support, encourage, and protect marriage. But there's something even more important than the social and economic factors. Marriage was created by God, and marriage reflects God's character. So if marriage is harmed, then that harms something created by God, and it reflects badly on his character. Now that first reading we heard from Ephesians 
shows us both the divine creation of marriage and its purpose in reflecting God's character. The Apostle Paul quotes from Genesis 2, describing God's creation of marriage. As the scripture says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and unite with his wife, and the two will become one. Paul then goes on to say, this is a deep secret truth revealed in this scripture, which I understand as applying to Christ and the church. But it also applies to you. Every husband must love his wife as himself, and every wife must respect her husband. So for Paul, this deep truth is that marriage is primarily about the relationship between Christ and the church. It is about how the husband treats his wife and vice versa. But in some ways that's secondary. The most important thing is that it reflects Christ and the church. Now Paul's picking up on a long biblical tradition of describing the relationship between God and his people uh, in terms of a marriage. Uh, Old Testament prophets such as Hosea and Isaiah describe God's people as his bride and God as the bridegroom. And Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. So Paul's picking up on that imagery and if anything taking it one step further. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. And Paul then spends two more verses talking about Christ and the church uh, before coming back to talking about husbands and wives. So Paul says that the very purpose of marriage is to reflect the relationship between God and his church. Marriage, human marriage, is like a giant acted-out visual aid to show other people what God's love for his church is like. So human marriages should be full of love, not only because that's a good thing in itself, but also because it reflects God's love for his church. The way we treat marriage whether we're married or not, affects what other people think of God. Now, it's important to be clear that when Paul says church, he's not talking about a building. Uh, He's not talking about a particular institution or denomination or clergy. He's talking about the body of people who believe in Jesus Christ throughout time and space, whether Anglican, Methodist, Baptist, whatever, whether meeting in a cathedral or a school hall, or a back room. So this is God's love for all people who believe in Jesus Christ, individually and corporately. Uh, This idea, by the way, that uh, marriage reflects God's love for his church, for his special people, um, it reminds me of the third commandment. Um, that we, uh, we thought about just over a month ago now, the third commandment says that those who bear God's name, that is God's people, should honour God's name, not dishonour it. So the third commandment establishes a principle that how we act affects how other people think of God. And in this particular case of the seventh commandment, how we act in marriage affects how other people think of God's love for his church. Paul tells us that marriage is designed to show, to show people that God's love is sacrificial, beautifying, exclusive, and enduring. I'm sorry I couldn't get them all to begin with the same letter for ease of memorization, um, but this is what I could come up with. Sacrificial, beautifying, exclusive, and enduring Uh, And I'll tell you why uh, I've uh, come up with those four words. First, sacrificial. 
Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. Now, there are times when I sacrifice my own interests, my energy, my time, my comfort, my preferences uh, for Caroline. Uh, Sadly, I have to confess there are many times when I don't. Jesus always sacrificed his interests, his energy, his time, his comfort, his preferences for the church, for his people. You just read, uh, read the Gospels and see how Jesus treated people. He's always putting other people before himself. And of course, Jesus made the ultimate literal sacrifice. Jesus gave his life for the church. God's love is sacrificial. God is willing to pay the ultimate price for his bride. God's love is beautifying. What I mean by that is God doesn't love the church because the church is beautiful. God loves the church to make it beautiful. Jesus didn't die for us because we're worth it. As they say in the adverts with a flick of the head, but I haven't got the long flowing locks for that. Jesus didn't die because we're worth it. Jesus died to make us worthy of him. Verses 26 and 27. He did this to dedicate the church to God by his word, after making it clean by washing in water, in order to present the church to himself in all its beauty, pure and faultless, without spot or wrinkle or any other imperfection. Jesus' sacrificial love was for the benefit of the church. Jesus died to make the church beautiful. Do you ever think of it like that? I, I don't very often. I need to be reminded of this great truth. Jesus died to make the church, to make God's people pure and faultless. Jesus died to make people spiritually beautiful. And God's love is exclusive. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and unite with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul here is quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which is also a verse that is quoted by Jesus whenever in the Gospels anyone asks him about marriage. Jesus sees this verse from Genesis as absolutely fundamental to marriage. Uh, And this verse from Genesis tells us that the union between a man and a woman in marriage is so intimate, so incredibly deep, that it's as if they are one flesh, one body, one being. And so it's inconceivable that this one flesh union should be shared with a third party. Human marriage is supposed to be exclusive, and it's supposed to be exclusive to reflect God's exclusive commitment to his people. God doesn't have a bit on the side somewhere else. God is fully 100% committed to his people. That's really good news for us. And God's love is enduring. This, on a human level, the one flesh union of marriage creates a bond that is supposed to last until death us do part. One flesh is, is so strong that it should only be ended by death. And when it ends before death, I'm told it often feels like a death. And this is to reflect the fact that God is absolutely, enduringly, permanently committed to his people. Again, read the Bible anywhere, Old Testament, New Testament, 
when God's people turn away, even when God's people are unfaithful, God still loves his people. And God's commitment is not only lifelong, because God is eternal, because God promises resurrection for those who believe, then God's love endures beyond death for eternity. God's love is enduring. So God's love is sacrificial. God's love is beautiful. It's exclusive. It's enduring. I'll make that S, B, E, and E. If you change the letters around a bit, you get B's. God's love is the B's knees. But that's the best I could come up with, but it's a bit weak, isn't it? I mean, think of the greatest love story that you can. Uh, for Rachel, who's through there in the Sunday club, uh, at the moment, she's obsessed with Cinderella, as many of you probably know already. Uh, Caroline's favourite is Wuthering Heights. Uh, I prefer Pride and Prejudice myself. Uh, whatever is the greatest love story you can think of, God's love is greater than all of these. Mr. Darcy sacrifices some of his money and some of his reputation for the sake of Elizabeth. Jesus sacrificed his life for the church. Heathcliff's love for Catherine is so strong it endures beyond death. But Heathcliff's love is selfish and vengeful, whereas God's eternal love is for our eternal benefit. Prince Charming took Cinderella from the kitchen to a beautiful palace. God promises his people, his bride, a new heaven and a new earth. As the Apostle John writes, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now, if we understand how amazing is God's commitment to his people, if we understand how sacrificial, how beautifying, how exclusive, how enduring is God's love for his church, and if we understand that our marriages on a human level are supposed to reflect something of that love between God and his people, then we oughtn't even to consider wavering for a moment in our commitment to our spouse. To, to, to make that personal to me, if I understand God's faithful love for the church, including me, then for me, even to think about being unfaithful to Caroline ought to be abhorrent. That's why Jesus can say, I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman and wants to possess her is guilty of committing adultery with her in his heart. After all, physical adultery will always begin with mental and emotional adultery. So don't even go there. Um, the Bible also says, flee from sexual immorality. It's the same principle. Uh, my old vicar down in London, before he was a vicar in London, he actually grew up on a farm in Cornwall. Uh, and he used to point out that um, when the Bible says flee from sexual immorality, um, it, the word for flee is the same word used to describe running away from a wild animal. Uh, and this vicar says that um, once he had to run away from a charging bull. 
Uh, and he says that at no point, whilst he was running away from the bull, at no point did he ever think, I wonder how close I can get to this bull without technically touching it. But that's how often we're tempted to think about adultery, isn't it? No, his only thought was to get as far away from the bull as possible, as fast as possible. So we should flee adultery. Don't see how close you can get. See how far away you can get. Uh, On a practical level, that means no fantasizing, no flirting, no pornography. Jesus says in our Gospel reading, so if your right hand causes you to sin, take it out and throw it away. It is much better for you to lose a part of your body than to have your whole body thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is much better for you to lose one of your limbs than to have your whole body go to hell. Yes, he's talking metaphorically, not literally here, but it's a a deliberately strong and shocking metaphor. And in fact, the reality it points to is actually even tougher than the illustration. Um, After all, you know, Gary's just about able to cope without the use of uh, his, uh, his left arm at the moment. Um, he, he tripped and fell in the gy- gym. It's nothing to do with adultery, sorry. I didn't mean to imply that. Um, you know, we, we can survive without an arm or without an eye, but, but actually, again, if I, if I understand where adultery comes from, it comes from the heart, it comes from the brain. I can't cut those things out and throw them away. Uh, but what Jesus is saying is, We must be ruthless. If we are to show the same commitment in our marriages as God has shown to his people, then we must be ruthless. We must be ruthless in our thought lives. We must be ruthless with our computers. We must be, we may have to be ruthless in our friendships or our work um, relationships. But please don't hear this as a list of don'ts. Remember how amazing is God's love for his people. God's love that sacrificed himself for his people. God loves you not because you are beautiful. God loves you because he wants to make you beautiful. God loves his people with exclusive commitment, even when his people are unfaithful to him. God's love is permanently committed, enduring beyond death into eternity. Again, now that we've thought again about the enormous extent of God's love, how inappropriate is it, how inconceivable is it that we should act with or even think about selfishness, conditionality, unfaithfulness or fickleness in our own marriages. So do not commit adultery. And I say that to myself uh, as much as to everybody else. But what about? What, what, What about? Our society, which when it comes down to it is people like me and you, our society has uh, all sorts of excuses as to why committing adultery may be acceptable. Um, one that you often hear, one that I often hear anyway, is it's my own private business. God has no uh, business telling me what I can or can't do in the privacy of my own bedroom. Really? I, I want to say this respectfully, but what an amazingly naive thing to say. If God is the creator and sustainer and ruler of the entire universe, without whom we could not exist or even draw breath, then there's no part of my life over which I can say, stop, God, stay out, that's none of your business. 
If Jesus loves us so much that he sacrificed his life for us, then it's absurd to say, I'll follow you, but not in the bedroom. That's like me saying to Caroline, I'll be faithful to you, but not in the bedroom. It's bizarre. And our marriages and our, our sexual, our romantic relationships, they are or they should be our closest, most intimate, most significant, most loving relationships. Again, it's absurd to think that God doesn't care how we treat the people we love the most, the people we're the closest to. So do not commit adultery. But what about, but I love her. I love him. This is true love. Well, what is true love? A love that imitates God's love for the church. A love that seeks my comfort a love that sacrifices my comfort for the benefit of my wife, a love that seeks the good of my wife, a love that remains exclusively committed to my wife, even when things get tough, a love that is permanently committed until death us do part. Is that true love? Or is true love a love that sacrifices my marriage for my hormones, a love that seeks my benefit, my gratification, a love that is fickle, changeable, temporary, Which of these is true love? Let us love our spouses as God loves his people. But what about marriage is just a piece of paper? I hear that a lot nowadays. Several of my wife's relatives would love to get married, but their spouses say, marriage is just a piece of paper. Now you may say that uh, marriage as a legal and cultural institution has been weakened by the easy availability of divorce, but it is still the way uh, in our society, in our law, in which we make a public and lifelong commitment to a spouse. So, uh, again, I'd ask, if, if you say, I love you, but I don't want to make a permanent lifelong commitment to you, think about what's being said. I love you, but only in secret. I love you, but only temporarily. What, what kind of love is that? Now, marriage is more, as we've heard, marriage is much more than a piece of paper. Uh, and the piece of paper is actually quite an easy piece of paper to get. Uh, it's, it's fairly straightforward to get a marriage. If you love someone, get the piece of paper. Show permanent public commitment. But, but what about, this is our final but what about, but what about me? I've never committed adultery. Well, really? Think back to that gospel reading again, as, as we've already said. Have you never had a lustful look or thought? I'm afraid I have. Have you never wished you were in a different relationship or wanted to be in a relationship you shouldn't be in? I know I have. I'm not going to give you all the details. I have confessed them to Caroline. According to what Jesus says, we are all adulterers, except possibly Billy Graham's wife, who's a murderer. Um, We have no right to judge anyone else when we look at our own hearts. I have no right to judge anyone else. But there is good news for us. Whether we have committed adultery in the flesh or whether we've committed it in our hearts and our minds, The good news is God's love that we've already been thinking about. 
God's love is more powerful than any human love. God's love, uh, more to the point, is more powerful than human sin. God is faithful to his people, even when his people are unfaithful to him and to others. Jesus sacrificed his life to forgive sinners. Jesus died to make his church beautiful, pure, faultless, and perfect. Thinking about it for a minute, the fact that Jesus died to make his church beautiful, pure, faultless, and perfect implies that we weren't naturally beautiful, faultless, and perfect. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to make us so. But it also implies that that is what Jesus is doing for all the people who believe in him. Jesus is making those who trust in him beautiful, pure, faultless, and perfect. There is forgiveness. There is restoration. There is transformation. So we, we all need to repent of our sin in the area of adultery. We all need to take seriously the challenge uh, to fight against it in our ongoing lives. But there is forgiveness. There is restoration. God's love is amazing. Let us seek his forgiveness and let us seek to imitate his love for us in our marriages. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing love for us, your love that is so amazing that our hearts and our minds cannot grasp its full extent. Please help us to to know more and more and more of just how great is your love for us. Thank you for this great truth that Jesus sacrificed his life to make your church beautiful. Thank you for being committed to us for all eternity. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Uh, We confess that we have not always loved you as we ought. We have not always loved our spouses as we ought or other people. Please forgive us and please strengthen us to love our spouses with the same sort of commitment that you show to us, that you may be glorified as people look at our marriages and see something of your love. We ask this for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose again. Amen.